On honor of the remembrance of the 500th anniversary of the, the Reformation, we, we've been spending some time looking at five Latin phrases, five solas, kind of the defined the, the heart and soul of, of, of the, the Reformation. And if Martin Luther nailing 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg was the spark that kind of set the, the flame of the Reformation going, then it was probably uh, this guy who ignited William, uh, Martin Luther. His name was Johann Tetzel. Johann Tetzel was a, a, a monk, and he was uh, charged or commissioned uh, with, uh, not, he was the, not the only one, but he happened to be the one in that section of Germany who was raising money uh, in part for the rebuilding, repair of uh, St. Peter's Basilica. And one of the ways of doing that was through the sale of indulgences. Now, indulgences sometimes are very much misunderstood, uh, still actually part of a, a Catholic a doctrine even even to this day, but they recognize the abuses of Tetzel. Uh, but the idea was that for a giving of alms, giving of a financial gift, you could uh, cover some sins of your own or the temporal punishment or from sins of some others, uh, particularly family members who might, even at that moment, uh, their concept of, of purgatory, a place of suffering and purification that you went to uh, on your way. Uh, to heaven and that you could kind of set somebody free from purgatory. One of the, the phrases that has come down through history that was attributed to Tetzel went something like this, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Right? Uh, catchy. Don't know if it's historically accurate or not. We don't really know that Tetzel actually offered those words, but it does seem to capture the spirit of the words that we do have. And let me just give you one example of that. This is from one of his sermons. Don't you hear the voices of your wailing dead parents and others who say, have mercy upon me, have mercy upon me, because we are in severe punishment and pain. From this, you could redeem us with a small alms, and yet you do not want to do so. Open your ears, as the father says to the son, and the mother to the daughter. We have created you, fed you, cared for you, and left you our temporal goods. Why then are you so cruel and harsh that you do not want to save us, though it only takes a little? So you let us lie in flames, so that only slowly come to the promised glory. You may have letters which you have once in life and in the hour of death, full remission of the punishment which belongs to sin. When Luther and others caught wind of this, they obviously reacted very strongly because it cut across the grain of the teaching of the New Testament. And it set kind of these wheels in motion, if you will, that led to the Reformation and led to kind of defining what do we really believe. And so we want to look at another one of those phrases this morning, and it's sola gratia, or by grace alone. And the central question around this is how and when do we gain a right standing before God? completely forgiven and no longer liable for punishment. And I have a fear as kind of go through a series like this. 
is that some folks will be fascinated with it because they like history and, and maybe even like the theology and they'll, they'll get in that. But I want you to hear this really isn't just about an insider's theological debate. This is not just something interesting out of the annals of church history of 500 years ago. But it goes to the core, core questions like, how do I experience God's forgiveness? How do I have a right standing with God? How can I have any assurance that I have a right standing before a holy God? Is it by grace alone? And that's why all these statements had solas alone, because you, you would find the teaching of that day, and, and in many respects to, to this day still, it was not that they wouldn't deny grace or faith that we talked about last week, but it would tended to be grace plus something. Faith plus something. And what, what the reformers brought us back to was that New Testament understanding that we are made right with God. We gain a right standing before God, completely forgiven, and no longer liable for punishment by his grace alone. By his grace alone. The New Testament, the theological word is justification. What in the world does that mean? Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness is belonging to us. And we'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks. And secondly, declares us to be righteous in his sight, that we have a right standing, that we are righteous in his sight. And, and the question became, is this something that God gives to us as a gift of grace or is it something that we have some part in earning, some part in meriting, even if we can trace those merits back to the, the grace of God? And so as we, we think about this question, I, I want us to go to uh, a, maybe a central text. And we looked at it a little bit last week when we were talking about by faith alone. But as we, we go to Ephesians chapter 2, this letter that Paul wrote to a group of Christians in Ephesus, and he wanted to make sure they had a crystal clear understanding around this question about what we brought to the table, about what God brought to the table. And so I want to encourage you just to find that if you have a copy of, of the Bible with you this morning, uh, whether paper or electronic, Ephesians chapter 2. And, and we're going to start off with kind of the bad news, if you will. And that's in the first uh, three verses of Ephesians 2. We might title this Sin's Work Against Us. This is the bad news. And you really don't appreciate the good news, which is what the gospel means good news until you've come to grips with the bad news. So let's start off as Paul did with the bad news. Verse 1 of chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of 
mankind. Now, though those are some challenging words and don't often play well to those of us who may think, well, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. And, and, you know, God should look on me pretty favorably because I'm not an axe murderer or anything like that along the way. But this is kind of, of a devastating critique, if you will. This is who we are. This is the truth about us apart from God's intervening grace. And he uses two words to kind of describe our, our condition or our sin, if you will. The first word, some of your translations will say transgressions. Transgressions or trespasses. Transgressions or trespasses. And that is really the meaning of that is to deviate. To go the wrong direction. So that I, I instead, of, instead of walking in God's ways, instead of responding to God in, in perfect love and perfect obedience as he desires and demands, I, I transgress, I, I trespass, I, I deviate, I go in a different direction. I go my way instead of his way. I kind of walk in, in the, the ways of the world, if you will. And so that's one of the descriptors of this is characteristic of our life. The other word is the word we get the word sin. Sin. And, and the background of that word is kind of missing the mark. And maybe one way to think about it is it would have been a, wor- a word uh, group that would have been used like with a bow and arrow. So if you th- think about the target, right, the bullseye, the rings around it, right, it's missing the mark. In fact, it, is, it would be the idea of you fall short. You don't even reach the target or you deviate so far to the right or to the left. And that, that's kind of the, the word picture that became our word sin, that it, we miss the mark the of what we were created for, of who we were created for. And we deviate and we go our own way. He says, because we have walked in that way, there is a logical, just, fair result. And that result is death, death. And so he opens that, that section by saying, and you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's talking about their, their former life before Christ. Physically dead. We know physical death. Just talking to some folks between the services about some of the things going on with some of their family members and just the deterioration of the body and some of them are near the point of death. And we, we just realize the awful reality of physical death. But there's spiritual death. Physical death may be the separation of a body and soul, but spiritual death is that separation of, between us and God for all eternity if it's left unchecked. Now, one quick clarification here, that all people apart from God are sinful and dead doesn't mean that everybody is equally wicked and corrupt, all right? And we know this instinctively, right? Not everybody is as evil as they could be in their behavior, right? But what the Bible says is that we are all equally dead. We're not as bad as we could be, but because of our sin, we're as bad off as we can be. And that, that's the New Testament picture, that I'm as bad off as I can be. I am spiritually dead, and eventually I'm going to experience physical death. And because of that, our greatest need is not to be reformed, but to be reborn. It is not, I just need to get a little better. It's not, I just need to get a little more spiritual, a little more religious. I need to kind of reform my ways. I need to kind of start walking on the straight and narrow or whatever it might be. No, our core need is not to be reformed, it is to be reborn. 
born. And this became even a different understanding from what we would say is, is New Testament and some of the teachings sometimes of, of some of the churches, particularly the Roman Catholic Church of the time that was operating more from a sense that we're not dead, we're just kind of damaged. And we just need kind of an infusion of grace to kind of get us on the pathway, the pathway toward kind of uh, toward salvation and, and eventually justification. But what Luther and others began to understand is what Paul was writing about. We're dead. We are spiritually dead. And if you're spiritually dead, there's nothing you can do to help yourself. Your need is not to be reformed, but to be reborn. And then he goes on to list kind of some contributors to spiritual death. There's kind of this reason why we are here. There are these contributors along the way. He talks about the world. And think about that as the value system of this world. You once walked following the courts of this world. That you used to operate in that realm. You used to operate before Christ. Christ intervened in your life according to the value system of this world, and it kind of continued keeping you in that pathway of trespasses and transgressions and sins. The world uh, kind of around us, but also he gets real personal, and we'll just say that the devil, uh, the devil. Uh, and this is the, the activity of Satan. In Ephesians, he calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and that, and that he seeks to influence, and he seeks to control and seeks to, to, to keep us uh, away from a recognition of our need. And, and I think he uses a lot of different techniques, if you will. But I, as I thought about you know, the culture in which we live and operate, I think one of Satan's favorite text, techniques is just distraction. It's just distraction. Somebody said, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And that we get running in so many directions and the demands at times seem so overwhelming and the options are so many that we find ourselves we kind of deadened to an awareness of God deadened to a sense of our need for God and I'm convinced that's why some folks pour so much time into hobbies and recreation and all these activities, and we need those things. Those are good gifts from God. We need things that help recreate us along the way. But I, I think particularly in a culture that has as many opportunities as we have, that, that these things can, can move from, from wonderful gifts to kind of entitlements, right? And they begin to take up more and more and more of our time. And I think part of it is the enemy uses that to distract us, to deaden us from an awareness of God, to try to fill our soul with stuff that's never ultimately going to satisfy because it was made to be satisfied in God, in God alone. And so there's the value system of the world and the enemy who oftentimes uses that. That's all operative on the outside, but then he talks about the flesh, the flesh that is at, at work as well, among whom you once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And, and that's not our physical flesh, that's not so much our our, our physical body as it is our sinful nature the part of what happened in the rebellion of Adam and Eve and, and and continues now to kind of reverberate through all creation and in us is is we have something on the inside that rebels against God 
and, and left unchecked will continue to walk in those ways. Now, because of cultural conditioning and, and society pressure, and maybe just because we've learned it's a good way to, to get along, maybe we can be nice po- folks, good neighbors, hard workers, provide for our family, all of those things. But we can still do all those things and be spiritually dead. We can still do all those things and be disconnected from God. And the result of those transgressions and sin, the result of those contributors shaping our life, in the end, he says, we are objects or children of wrath. Objects are children of wrath. And when you read that, it's kind of startling, isn't it? And because that's not how we typically talk. We, we tend to say, well, we're all basically good people. And, but, but what the Bible says is that that scale is so relative, first of all, but that we are left unchecked objects of wrath. And when it talks about the wrath of God, it's not an explosive burst of anger, okay? I mean, sometimes when we talk about wrath, we go, oh, that means, you know, I've just kind of, you know, sometimes jokes and just boom, right? I've had it, bang, and it just, it just come flowing out, right? This boom, explosion of wrath. It's not like God is sitting in heaven and he's just like tapping his foot and he's getting more and more impatient, more and more impatient, and then he finally goes, boom, right? No, no, no. But it is this fixed indignation, this settled indignation against sin. And think about it. God wouldn't be good if he didn't hate sin, right? Because he knows. He knows what sin has done to creation. He knows what sin does to the lives of individuals. He knows what sin does to to families. How could you be a good God? How could you be a holy God and not have an indignation against sin? If you love people, you hate sin because of what it does, how it destroys. And just who he is in his character. He is good. He is holy. And so there is this settled indignation against sin. And what I have earned and what I have deserved is to be separated from him. Now, that's the bad news. That's the bad news. The bad news sets us up to be receptive to the good news. And that's what the gospel is. The gospel literally means good news. If sin has done this work against us, he goes on and talks about God's work for us, that God intervened for us. Look at verse 4. It starts off with two of my favorite words in the Bible. But God. I love it. But God. I, I, I deserved this. I was an object of wrath. I was a child of wrath. I was under this sentence. Justice was, was fixed upon me. But God. But God intervened. But God stepped in. But God did something for me I could not do for myself. But God saw my condition. But God intervened. And he goes on to talk about that. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places 
in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may (laughs) boast. What is it that God did? What did but God do? Well, let's first look at why before we look at what. Why did God intervene? Why did God step in? And he gives us kind of two reasons. They flow out of the character of God. The first is love. In his love. That he, because of the great love which he loved us. For God so loved the world that he intervened. It is the compassion to those who do not deserve it. It's not a, you love me so I'll love you back. No, it is God saying, I love you even when you rejected me. I love you when you chose not to love me. It is his compassion to those who do not deserve it. It grew not out of our performance, but out of his character, his love. And out of his love, he was rich in mercy. Mercy. And being rich in mercy. Again, it's about the character of God. Because of his mercy, because as part of his character, he does not give us what we deserve. He does not give us instantaneous death. He does not give us the justice we deserve. But he intervenes. He intervenes. That's the why. Because of his great love. Because he is rich in mercy. Well, what did he do? Verses 5 through 7 that we just read tells us. He made us alive with Christ. Remember a moment ago, I said our greatest need is not to be reformed, but to be reborn. When you're spiritually dead, you don't need a better makeup job, right? You don't need a new set of clothes. You need to be brought to life. He made us alive. We were dead, unable to save ourselves. And he made us alive, alive with Christ. And he did this through the intervention of Christ. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians 5.21 in a little more detail in a couple of weeks. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He, he intervened. He intervened when we were dead, and he intervened by sending Jesus Christ to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And this impacts my past, my present, and my future. My past, whatever it's been, whatever have been the highs and lows, whatever have been the, the things that we don't want to talk about, we don't want to share, those things that still maybe even kind of haunt some of us to this day, those things no longer have to define us. Because God, being rich in mercy, has provided forgiveness for our sin, not by our good deeds, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. My present can be lived differently. I live out of a new identity of who I am in Jesus Christ, who I can be as a child of God. I no longer have to live as a captive or a victim to the ways and the value system of the world or the influence of the enemy or even the sin nature that may still reside within me. But I have been set free. I been empowered by the present Jesus Christ and it impacts my future because my forever is secure. 
<laughs> I'm not sure all the reasons as I've tried to learn about it and read about it through the years of the whole idea of purgatory, a place where you go to kind of pay, you know, kind of get purified and pay for your sins. But listen, when we come to the New Testament, what we find out is Jesus paid it all. <laughs> he paid it all. I don't have to worry about my future that I'm going to be in this place where all this stuff's going to happen to kind of purify the sin because he has set me free. He has cleansed me in Jesus Christ. Well, how? He made us alive. How did he do that? Two key phrases, verses 8 and 9. First one is by grace. By grace. That's God's part. Grace at its core is unmerited favor. It, it, it is God doing for us, not only withholding what we deserve, but giving us far, far, far more than we deserve. And listen, I'll just go ahead and tell you, part of the prayer for today is that some of you would be ambushed by grace today. That some of you would be overwhelmed by what God has done for you. Perhaps for the very first time that you would come face to face with it's not about your religious activity. It's not about uh, moral reform. It's about being transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ that he would ambush you with his goodness and with his love and his mercy and his grace today. I'm praying that for some of you maybe that have, have, have clung to maybe months, years ago, the grace of Jesus Christ, but you've kind of fallen back into profession performance patterns where you're kind of living life you say well I'm saved by grace but it's kind of performance from here on out that you would be ambushed by grace and that you would realize that every moment every moment that you have everything that you could do even in response to God is a gift of his grace it's a gift of his grace and that you would live in the freedom of grace. And that grace becomes operative in our life, as we talked about last week, through faith. Through faith. And I won't spend a lot of time here because we, we dug a little deeper into that last week when we were looking at uh, sola fide. Uh, but as we talk about faith, just a quick reminder, it always involves two parts. It involves our mind, believe the facts, that I have to believe that Jesus did these things. I have to believe that it can make a difference in my life. But it also involves my will. It's an act of trust. It's not just an intellectual belief. It's not even just knowledge and intellectual assent. But it has to involve personal trust. An entrusting of myself to God. I, I entrust myself to him, my past, my present, and my future. It is that act of, of trust that ignites the reality of grace being operative in my life. And all of this, all of this, Paul reminds us, is a gift. It's a gift of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not the result of work so that no one may boast. The grace of God is gift. The capacity to exercise faith is gift. To be able to hear and know and respond to the gospel is gift. To be aware of my need is gift. It all comes as a undeserved, unearned gift from God. And I want you to make sure that you understand this is not just like an isolated thought in the New Testament. 
But as you go through the Gospels, as you go through the letters of Paul, you find time and time and time again that declaration. It's not about works. It's not about keeping rules and laws. Romans 3, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Well, what do the commands do? They make me aware of my sin. They, they certainly can guide me in how to live in his grace, but they make me aware of my sin. The law drives me to an understanding of my need for grace. I realize I can't measure up on my own. Galatians 2.16. Yet we know, we know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we've also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Listen, I don't know what your background is. We have folks from a wide, wide, wide diversity of backgrounds. Some of you may have grown up real religious. Some of you, no religion at all. Some of you, maybe this is your first day in a church in a long, long time, and we're glad you're here. But hear me. There is no law that I can keep. There are no rules that I can keep that are going to make me right with God. There is no act I can perform that will make me right with God. It is a gift by his grace. For the wages of sin, what I've earned is death. What I've earned is death. But the free gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So go back to that original question. How, how do I get made right with God? How can I get into a right standing with God? Not by works. Even the best deeds and the best religious works. But by his grace, it is a free gift. But that free gift always shows up and shows out. And again, we talked about that last week a little bit. And we talked about the relationship between faith and works. But just a reminder, not only did God do a work for us, but God does a work through us. He intervened in our lives through Jesus Christ in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. It's where we get, although the Greek root there is where we get our word poem from. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That you are God's masterpiece. That God not only saves us from something, but he saves us for something. That there is a purpose to your life. There are things that God uniquely wants to do through your life, not to earn his favor, but because you're living in the flow of his favor. Not to to get grace and right standing before God, but as a demonstration of the fact that you have received that grace and you're living out of this new identity and this new relationship with God. Jesus encouraged us in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's not do your good works to earn that relationship with your Father. No, it's good works that that display through the fact that you already have this relationship with your Father. It is your new life on display. Said another way, works are not the price of salvation, but they're one of the proofs of salvation. 
And again, we hit this pretty good last week, so I won't spend much more time here. But it's so central. It is so central to this understanding of how to be right with God. It's not about works that we do. It is about the work that he has done. That Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. But I want to press on at this moment because I need you to hear it is more than just a head knowledge. Some of us could check this box off on a theological quiz, right? But it is not just a head knowledge that is transformative. Yes, it's good news that I have to understand But it is more than just an intellectual understanding. John's opened the gospel this way. But to all who did receive him, to all those who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Sometimes when I'm talking with someone about this, I'll put it this way. Believe plus receive equals become. Believe plus receive equals become. And the reason I talk about it is what we talked about last week. Sometimes when people hear the word believe, they just think intellectual. They think just mental. I believe that. I believe that, you know, this exists or that exists or I believe that that's a historical fact. But when, when the Bible talks about faith, it's not just believing that, it's trusting in It is receiving, receiving personally the gift of God's grace by acknowledging our need and trusting in him. Trusting him with our past, with our present, and with our future. And that's what we desire for you. That's what we desire for you. That you experience God's grace. That you get ambushed by God's grace. And our prayer is that there are going to be some of you in this room that before you leave this room, that that you're going to be ambushed. Ambushed by that thought that, that God intervened, that God did something for you that you could never, ever, ever, ever do for yourself. And that you will open your life wide open to that grace. My prayer is that there will be some of you that you'll be ambushed by grace, not just that initial saving grace, but that every day, every moment, life-transforming grace, that you will walk out of this room living out of a different identity, an identity not based on how well you did last week, but an identity based on what Jesus Christ did for you years and years and years ago. The one who gave up the glories of heaven. And oh, we, we, throw, we pass that by real quick sometimes. I mean, Christmas time, oh yeah, God, baby, Bethlehem. I mean, do you realize how extraordinary that was? That he gave up the glories of heaven to take on human flesh. To walk in a world that had value system, the antithesis of who he was. To be assaulted and tempted in every way to go willingly to a cross after a life of perfect love and perfect obedience and on the way to be spit upon and slapped and mocked and beaten and then to suffer that separation from the father on the cross as the weight of sin came crashing down and he did all of that 
so that you and I could have a right relationship and a right standing with God. Don't insult him by trying to earn it. Just humbly receive it. John Ortberg talks about a graduation ceremony he got to be a part of at a Sousa Pacific University. And prior to the actual graduation ceremony, there was kind of a, a gathering of some, you know, faculty and donors and that sort of thing. And, and some of you have been a part of that on both ends and sometimes bring some students in to kind of say thank you and, and, and all of that sort of thing. And, and unbeknownst to three students that night, they were about to be ambushed by grace. And so the three students came in and the president kind of got everybody quiet in this gathering and he had the three of them in front. And he turned to the first student and he said, you don't know this, but somebody that you don't know has paid your entire student loan debt. You are forgiven your entire debt of $105,000. And the student just started crying. Second student, you're forgiven your entire student loan debt of $70,000. Somebody else paid it all. third students kind of trembling at this point, right? You've been forgiven your entire student loan debt of $130,000. It's gone. You don't owe a penny. John said by the time that third student's forgiveness of debt was announced, the whole room was bawling. The whole room was bawling unexpectedly that night those three students were ambushed by grace a debt they owed somebody else paid it all see when the bible talks about this when jesus talked about this he talked about us having a debt not a debt that maybe you could service in a few years of paying off your student loans of 70 105 or 130,000 but a debt that was so large, it was so huge that you could work for lifetimes and never pay it off. But that is the debt that was forgiven. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We want you to be ambushed by his grace. We want you to experience the freedom and the life now and for all eternity that comes by his amazing, amazing grace. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray, please? Oh, Father, thank you for your grace. It truly is unbelievably amazing. And Father, we don't have even the, the capacity to fully understand how much we owed and how great our debt was.
and how great your intervention has been. And so, Father, I just, I just praise you and thank you for your amazing, amazing grace. And, Lord, I'm praying right now as, as we've been praying in anticipation of this morning that, Father, that you would ambush some people in this room with grace this morning. That, Father, there would be some folks that would walk out of this room differently than how they walked in. That today would be the day of transformation, of rescue, of salvation. Today would be the day that, not that they say, I'm going to do harder and better, but they say, I'm trusting you. I fall on my knees before your amazing grace. Lord, today, activate faith that not only believes that Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said he did, but a faith that trusts in and entrusts you. Lord, today, draw a child, draw a student, draw an adult, draw that man, draw that woman. Speak to us right now. Father, I want to pray for some of your children here, some of your children who maybe have forgotten grace. Maybe they've been focused more on their performance, and maybe it hadn't been so great lately. And Lord, I pray, I pray that you would break through. Break through an ambition with your grace today. As you just take another moment or two to sit before the Lord, have some questions in the note-taking guide.